A little warning before we proceed, my dear listeners. This will not be a cheery, light episode. Why not? I'm glad you asked. Let us begin on our dark journey through America's days of infamy. First up, the Indian Removal Act. On May 28, 1830, President Andrew Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act. The act allowed the president to negotiate with various Native American tribes to cede land east of the Mississippi to white settlers. Although the language of the act sounded reasonable, the effect was the forcible and bloody removal of Native Americans from their ancestral lands. As some tribes resisted the forced relocation, federal troops were brought in to compel their removal. Roughly one-third of the Native Americans, mainly Cherokee, died as a result. The United States had previously granted the land to the tribes in previous treaties, but then decided that it wanted the land after all, especially after gold was discovered on it. We simply killed the Native Americans if they resisted the forced relocation. The march westward, in which many Native Americans died, is known now as the Trail of Tears. We did this. We took land from Native Americans after we had tried to reconcile with them after the colonial wars we had initiated. We betrayed them for no other reason than greed and gold. Next, the Tuskegee Experiments. 600 poverty-stricken African-American sharecroppers in Macon County, Alabama, 399 of which already had syphilis, 201 did not. By 1947, this study, which had begun in 1932, the scientific world confirmed that penicillin was an effective cure for the disease syphilis. Instead, researchers withheld the cure, withheld any knowledge of the cure, and withheld information pertaining to the men's conditions. In other words, the men were lied to, usually told that they were being treated for bad blood. They were prevented from seeking treatment elsewhere. This even extended to fighting men in the study who registered for the draft during World War II and were diagnosed by military officers and military medical personnel as having the disease. All in all, the doctors in the study systematically lied to and withheld treatment from the men in order to watch the disease progress unchecked. The study was ended 40 years after it began in 1932 when a whistleblower brought the evil practice to the attention of the public. By that time, in 1972, 128 of the men had died from the disease, either directly or through complications. In addition, 40 women, the men's wives, had been infected, and 19 children had been born with congenital syphilis. We did this. We medically tortured 400 men, American citizens who had committed no crime. Japanese internment. Executive Order 9066, issued by President Franklin Roosevelt on February 19, 1942, about two and a half months after the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, 
resulted in approximately 117,000 people, most of whom were American citizens, being imprisoned in military camps across the West Coast. Prior to this, on the actual day of the Pearl Harbor attack, the FBI rounded up 1,291 Japanese community and religious leaders, arresting them without evidence and freezing their assets. Lieutenant General John DeWitt proposed the mass incarceration of those with Japanese, German, and Italian heritage, though the public resisted the concept of incarcerating Europeans. He produced a report that was a lie. He claimed to have uncovered examples of sabotage by Japanese Americans, but his findings were later revealed to be hoaxes or outright lies. FDR signed the executive order on February 19th. The order called for anyone with at least one-sixteenth Japanese heritage to be evacuated, which included about 17,000 children under 10 years of age. The relocation centers to which these people were eventually taken after being shuffled around in other facilities had barbed wire and guard towers. In 1945, the United States Supreme Court ruled in Endo versus the United States that this practice was illegal. The last camp closed in March of 1946, over four years after the process had begun. We did this. We imprisoned over 100,000 people for no reason other than we were afraid of their race. The policy was built on fear and lies and affected over 17,000 children. Child Separation at the Border Starting in July of 2017 and extending to November of that same year, the U.S. government instituted a pilot program in or near El Paso, Texas, whereby children traveling with their parents who had crossed the border illegally were taken from their parents and then reclassified as unaccompanied. This represented a major change from how people who had crossed the border illegally had been treated. Under the previous administration, very few children had been separated from their parents. This was done in cases where the parent was deemed unsuitable as a guardian. In, in addition, the idea that felons must be separated from their children is a misleading one. It had not been practiced to charge those crossing the border illegally with a felony. The current administration changed that. In fact, even prior to the El Paso pilot program, then Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly said in March of 2017 that he was considering separating children from their parents. When asked on television, he said, among other things, I am considering exactly that. They will be well cared for as we deal with their parents. Furthermore, many of those crossing were seeking asylum, which is legal according to U.S. law. So even the thin pretext of separating children from felons is false. Children were sent to relocation centers in places like Chicago and separated from their parents for months. The Trump administration said publicly that their approach was meant as a deterrent, but they denied, or if you prefer, lied, about that very fact when pressed. By October of 2017, over 700 children, 100 of whom were under the age of four, had been taken from their parents. Finally, in April of 2018, then Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced the zero tolerance policy, 
which had been secretly in effect for some time. The administration continued to lie about what was happening. It's not until May 11th, 2018, that John Kelly, who at this time was chief of staff, announces publicly that this was a tough deterrent, his words. By May 31st of 2018, 1,995 children had been separated. Senators who tried to personally investigate were denied the ability to inspect detention centers. Gradually, however, public pressure mounted and President Trump signed an executive order on June 20th that was characterized by the government as an end to the policy. But the text of the order did not end the separations, nor did it address what was to be done with the, by now, over 2,000 children who had been separated. The courts ordered the administration to reunite the children with their families, but the Trump administration did not comply or did not comply fully. By August 9, 2018, there remained 572 children who had not been reunited. It has since been revealed that the government did not have a plan to reunite children, and many have been lost in the system. By April of 2019, the government admitted that there are likely thousands more children who had been separated than had been accounted for previously. And it may take as much as two years to reunite them with their parents if it can even be done at all. Despite assurances from the government, separations are still occurring even now. Border Patrol agents can decide if a parent accompanying a child is unfit and are using petty crimes and their own judgment to do so. The many lies coming out of the administration and the reluctance to inform the public about their own government's actions make it difficult to know exactly what is happening. Those defending the policy claim many things. Firstly, that the separation is justified as a deterrent and is legal. Attorney General Sessions and White House Press Secretary Sanders both invoked the Bible to defend the policy. Southern slave owners did the same thing in the 19th century to defend the policy of slave ownership. And by the same thing, I mean literally the same Bible passage. Secondly, many defenders of the policy claim that the separation isn't that bad and that many children are reunited with their parents quickly. Also, the claim goes, the children are given food, shelter, clothing, and education. In some cases, lawmakers have claimed that the treatment the children are getting is better than what they had prior to separation. Some right-wing pundits have claimed that the children are not really in distress, and any evidence pointing to that is the result of child actors. Again, we saw the identical argument used to defend the practice of slavery. Thirdly, we have the president himself saying that the opposition party is responsible for the policy. This is simply another lie from the current president. We are doing this. There are moments in history where the United States shone like a beacon of hope, liberty, and justice to the rest of the world. The Marshall Plan of 1947 was a noble effort to try and help Europe recover from the devastation of World War II. It is true that it was also designed to be a bulwark against communism, but the generosity to our allies, old and new alike, in Europe was a noble gesture. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, though it did not do enough, 
was for its time a landmark piece of legislation seeking to begin to address racial discrimination that was infecting our country. Armstrong landing on the moon in 1969, women's suffrage 1920, ratification of the Constitution 1789, all these and more are moments all Americans can be proud of. When America is at her best, she is the greatest nation on earth. Founded on enlightenment principles, she has the potential to lead and heal the world. But we are not perfect. We have had our moments of darkness when we were weak and afraid and when we allowed our weakness and fear to rule us. Those moments are not restricted to history. Some of them play out in the present, in our own lifetimes. I am not advocating the destruction of America for its missteps, but we cannot blind ourselves to what we've done wrong in our immature love of patriotism. We are capable of ennobling acts that can change the world and guide humanity towards a better future. But we are also capable of succumbing to the demons that whisper in our ears. It is up to us, each one of us, to decide if we will listen.